Amen. <clears throat> Thanks, Van, for, for leading us. Uh, if I have m- not met you yet, my name is Ross. I get to serve here as uh, family pastor, and I'm excited to, uh, to be in God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be continuing our series in 2 Timothy this morning. So if you have a copy of Scripture on you, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's all the way at the end of the Bible, or if you're uh, looking on your table of contents on your phone, it's like at the end of the table of contents. Um, and uh, all the way at the, in, toward the end of the Bible, there's 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 10. A few years ago, um, uh, we were, Monica and I, were, my wife, we were living in South Carolina, and uh, where I had, had gone to school and, and seminary, and we were preparing at that time to move back up here to Alaska, to move home, and um, we, so we were preparing to sell our house, we were preparing to change jobs, um, and uh, both of us, and then we were preparing to move all the way across the country, and then also we found out that we were pregnant with our first son, uh, or our first child, we didn't know if it was as a boy or a girl, so we found out we were pregnant, and we we're going to be moving across the country, and we're, you know, looking for new housing and all this stuff. So there's all these changes that were happening in our, in our life and in our, our marriage, and and with that season of change came a lot of extra conflict and tension in our marriage. We were constantly, it seemed like we were miscommunicating. Like we both knew we wanted to end up in Alaska, but exactly how we got there, it just seemed like we were always looking at things, uh, different challenges, different situations that we were facing facing, we were looking at them from completely opposite perspectives. It was like we were totally, uh, completely different people looking at these problems from totally opposite perspectives. And I remember sitting down with the, the, the lead pastor of the church that we were at in South Carolina and kind of venting to him, kind of telling him like uh, how frustrating it is, like uh, that Monica doesn't see things my way and that we're totally different people and all this stuff. And, and, we're, and I, so I was, I was frustrated and he just, I remember he kind of like kind of interrupted me nicely in the conversation and said, Ross, what you're describing is literally every single marriage. Like, what you were describing about you miscommunicating with with Monica and you feeling like you're completely different people and opposite perspective, like, that is what every single husband who has ever talked to me about their marriage has said about their wives, like, that they feel like they're from completely different planets, right? That, what you're going through, Ross, is not unique the challenges, the pain, the frustrations, the miscommunications that, that you're facing in your marriage, they're not unique. It's normal. This is, what, this is what every couple faces. And I remember sitting across from him and being a little bit annoyed when he told me that. I was like, come on, I'm just trying to like, I, I want you to sympathize with me a little bit. I want you to agree with me and, and tell me how how unique uh, the, the challenges that I'm facing are compared to everyone else. Like, I have the hardest marriage ever, and I'm such a saint for, for being able to make it through. Like, and, uh, and, of course, that's, that's foolishness, but that's what I wanted from him. And instead, what he said is, no, you're normal. This is normal. Pain, frustration is normal. Uh, you should expect all of this. And so at first, I was a little annoyed, but there is also something that's strangely comforting about knowing uh, that conflict in marriage is normal. It, it was, I needed to be assured, I needed to be reminded that the challenges that Monica and I were facing at that particular season in our life, 
they weren't insurmountable. Like we, we weren't the only we we aren't the we weren't the only couple and the only marriage that had ever gone through fights and arguments and miscommunications. They're not. This is not unprecedented. Others had walked this road before me, and that that didn't uh, hearing that being reminded of that didn't make me want to just throw in the towel and stop trying in my marriage. What it made me do is actually it made me want to push to become a better husband and a better. Father, knowing that pain, knowing that conflict, knowing that frustration is, is normal, maybe help me to press in to the, to the pain and the hard things. It was actually comforting to know that pain is normal. A little bit like this guy. He's just trying to comfort us that this is, everything is normal. Don't worry. All right? But that brings us to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, and uh, where we see, I think we're, we're going to look at eight verses, and the central message that, that we can find in these uh, eight verses that, that, um, that Paul wants us to know and he wanted Timothy to know is this, that we must continue to be shaped by Scripture even when it hurts because we know our end. We must continue to be shaped by Scripture even when it hurts because we know our end. Timothy is in Ephesus, and he's getting beat up from all sides. He's trying to lead this church, and the, those, the very people that claim to be leaders in the church with him were proving themselves to be hypocrites, to be abusive, to slander and gossip about him. So he's getting beat up from all sides, and Paul writes to encourage him. And what he says, is that what, as we'll see, is the pain that you're facing, it's normal. So instead of withdrawing from pain, press into it. Continue to be shaped by Scripture even when it hurts because we know our end. Okay? So we're going to read verses 10 through 13 now. Uh, we can, we'll see kind of two points. The first is that pain is normal, and the second point is so, that we, so we must keep pressing in. We're going to see those two points. But before we read our passage, let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, you are the God of all comfort. You are the God of all life. So Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort, that you bring new life through your word this morning. We've already confessed that we need your spirit to move. Uh, we don't need it to move in the ways that we think it needs to move. We need your spirit to move as your gospel is preached. And accompanying your word, would you change us by the power of your spirit? Would you make us more like your son as we encounter your word today? Uh, and we, uh, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10. He says, Paul writes, You, speaking of Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. All right, so this is how Paul encourages or begins to encourage Timothy here in a, in a tough situation. The first thing that he says is, 
Uh, life in Christ has predictable consequences. That's the first blank in your handout if you're following along there. Life in Christ has predictable consequences. It, and, and he starts this passage by affirming Timothy. He says, you, however, you are nothing like those hypocrites, those abusive, those slandering gossips uh, that, 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 that claim to, live, uh, to, to believe one thing, but um, you're nothing like them. Uh, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience. And that word follow, that's an important word. When we think of the word follow, uh, I think we uh, often can think of like a very passive action. Like if you've ever seen little like uh, preschoolers play follow the leader, like they're just like a bunch of four-year-olds like just trying to follow the next person and reacting to the person that's, that's in front of them. But actually the word that, that Paul uses when he describes what Timothy did as he's following, it's a very meticulous and it's a focused action, imitation. It's meticulous and focused. It's like the difference between following uh, a truck down a two-lane country road, right? Uh, not a lot of traffic on the street. You can just kind of sit back and, you know, if you're following somebody, somebody's house that you've never been to before down a two-lane road, you can kind of just mosey along following them. But if you're on the on a busy interstate going 65 miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic, you're going to be sitting up in your seat trying to follow this guy perfectly. Uh, it's, a, it's a different kind of following. It's a focused imitation. It's a focused and a, a meticulous, intentional imitation. And that's what Timothy was doing to Paul. He was sitting up in his seat, paying attention carefully, following every aspect of his life. And particularly... Paul, or Timothy had, was following Paul's example to suffer. And he lists, did you see those three towns that he lists? Like Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Those were three towns. This is what Paul, by referencing those cities, Paul's referencing a very specific historical event. And those were three towns that he went to on his very first, Paul, on his very first missionary journey. He, uh, he, he went, uh, first he went to Cyprus, and he goes up to what is now modern-day Turkey, and goes to uh, Antioch. And this is recorded for us in Acts, Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. If you're following along with a reading plan, this is what we actually read on Tuesday. Uh, this, this week we, 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 just, we uh, read about Paul's experience in, 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 in these three towns in Acts 13 and 14. He gets to Antioch, and uh, in a very short order, he, he goes and he preaches in, in their synagogues. He, he, uh, he proclaims Christ. And after less than two weeks, he's there for, he, he has two opportunities to speak. And after, after the second one, uh, the most influential people in the city are rallied against Paul. They per, uh, they, they, it says they persecuted him and they banished him from the region, okay? And then, then, so then he travels down the road to Iconium. And after a while, uh, they tried to, after a very short time, they tried to kill him in Iconium. And, but he escapes, he flees, and he goes down the road to Lystra. Uh, and, and you know, you notice these cities are all very, very close together, so he's just traveling from town to town. And in Lystra, it's so bad there that the people from Antioch and Iconium actually follow him down the road to Lystra. And they, there they stone him. They, a mob of people pick up rocks, throw stones at him until they think he's dead. They're pretty sure he's dead. They walk away. He's actually not dead. His disciples rush in behind him, behind the, the crowd, the mob. They, they, bring him, uh, uh, they bring him to Derby, actually, the next town over, where he, they, they restore him back to health, okay? So that's Paul in those three cities. And then 
uh, we're told at the end of Acts chapter 14 is that he's not done yet. A normal person would have just gone back to Jerusalem, but instead Paul decides after getting nursed back to health in Derby, he goes back to those same three towns again weeks later and says, it, this is what we read at the end of Acts, Acts chapter 14, it says they, that's Paul and Barnabas, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, those three towns, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. No kidding. And, and when they had appointed elders for them in, in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Okay, so that's how Paul ends his time in, in Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, there in Central Asia Minor. Two chapters later, Paul goes, uh, so in between, uh, so Paul then goes back to, back to Jerusalem for a little while, meets with the other apostles, then a few months later goes back to those same three towns. And we're told in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, that when he goes to Lystra, he comes to Lystra, and he meets a guy named Timothy. And that's the very first encounter in the book of Acts that we're, that we're told about Timothy. He was from Lystra. He was from this, the town in which Paul was stoned nearly to death. And that's where he meets Timothy. So this is Timothy's uh, understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. This is Timothy's, when, he's, when Timothy signs up to, to follow Paul around, he's signing up to go get uh, go get beaten by, by mobs. Okay, that's what, that's what, Timothy, uh, that's what Timothy signs up for. Uh, but now, it's years later, by the time that Paul is writing 2 Timothy. Here, it's decades later, 20, 30 years later, okay? Timothy's not, no longer a teenager, he's a, he's a grown man. And uh, he's in Ephesus, uh, and it, Timothy himself is being slandered abused and opposed by many. And you can imagine what Timothy is, is thinking at this point. Is it really supposed to be this way? Is following Jesus really supposed to be this hard? Right? Just like all of us if, if, who are married, we've all asked the question, is being married really supposed to be this hard? That's what Timothy is asking about his, his relationship with Jesus. Is it supposed to be this hard? And Paul says, yes, everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I'm, I immediately kind of get like antsy or uncomfortable about it. Because I, I read it and I think, man, I don't know how much I've really been persecuted. Uh, I live a pretty comfortable American life. Uh, I've, I have not faced intense persecution. Does that mean that I'm not uh, that I'm not really saved, or have I really endured enough to be to to, to have followed uh, Jesus? Uh, and um, like there like there's something more that we need to endure in order to know for sure uh, that we're that we're followers of Jesus. But I think there's there's three things that need to be said about this verse kind of, that kind of answer this this question. The first thing is that persecution shouldn't be sought out. So Paul here is just giving Timothy a promise. He's saying persecution will come. He's not saying, therefore, go seek persecution out. So we don't need to read this verse and get insecure and you know, go up to our non-Christian coworkers tomorrow and poke them in the chest and tell them, you're going to hell, you better turn and repent. Right? We don't need to seek anything out. It's a promise. 
Secondly, though, uh, uh, we see that some persecution comes in response to the Christian lifestyle, uh, not, not necessarily to Christian preaching or the proclamation of the gospel. It's not, some persecution comes in response to the Christian way of life, not necessarily just to those who publicly proclaim the gospel. There's a, a hidden hyphen there that doesn't belong. But, uh, and you can, uh, so notice, notice what Paul says about, about, what, uh, Tim, about, uh, about the persecution. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. Not all those who desire to, you know, to evangelize their coworkers will face persecution, or all those who desire to go church plant overseas will face persecution. Just by living a life that's shaped by the gospel we've, is, is, is enough to invite persecution. All right? So it's not extraordinary Christians who face persecution. It's normal. It's the normal Christian way of life that invites it. And this is a uh, counterintuitive, even countercultural principle that, that, that there is something offensive, repulsive, and unattractive about the life that Scripture calls God's people to live. Uh, when, I was in, when I was going to school, and, and when I was in seminary, I worked for a window cleaning and pressure washing company called Crystal Clear Solutions. We cleaned residential and commercial windows and did, and did pressure washing and, and stuff. And, so, and when I started uh, working there, I signed a form called a non-compete, which basically says, you know, I will not, uh, you know, do side gigs to try to, that would compete with my uh, employer. Uh, like, I wouldn't offer a competitive business or competitive service that would po- steal potential clients and income from, from my employer. So I, this is called a non-compete. And, and I was actually told by, uh, and I, so it, and that applied for the time that I was working for the company, but then also for a period of three years after I left, left the company. Um, and, uh, and I was told actually by a lawyer and by a couple different business owners that uh, in the state of South Carolina, which we're, where we're living, those actually hold, there's no real legal basis for those. I don't, maybe it's, a, I don't, I don't, I'm not a lawyer or anything like that, but, but uh, there's, there's no real legal basis for those. So there's no real weight. So you can, if your, if your boss ever wanted to sue you or whatever, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. Uh, but I still, you know, I had signed a, a piece of paper that said I would do this. Like I, I would not, I would not compete with my with my employer, uh, and, but I had a lot of people, and I, was, I worked there for three years or so, I had dozens of people come up to me and tell me, uh, hey, like, can I just pay you under the table, don't want to, I don't, like, you can give me, a, like, a, a, a deal here, I don't have to pay the overhead of the, of the company, that I just want to pay you for your labor uh, and stuff, and, and, and I said, no, actually, I told my boss I wouldn't do that, I can give you a card, and we can set up, I can come by and give you a quarter, or, uh, and we can go through the through the, through the company, but, uh, and they, uh, but I, I couldn't give them a special discount just to, to, just to pay for, for my labor and not have to pay the, the regular rate. And, um, and I had multiple people, I had dozens of conversations like that, but I had a couple people, a handful of people, actually get very angry at me for doing that uh, and yell at me in a couple of instances be, because I was denying them, you know, denying them a discounted rate on, on, the, on the services that we provided. And, and I remember thinking, like, okay, I'm not, like, being an arrogant, prudish, you know, Christian here saying, well, no, I can't do that. I can't compromise my integrity because I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm better than you. I'm just 
saying, no, I, I, can't, I can't do that. I told my boss I wouldn't do that, so I'm not going to do that. And, uh, and I, wasn't trying to, I wasn't preaching the gospel to them. I wasn't, I wasn't telling them that they better repent of their sins or else they're going to burn. I was just trying to live normal and integrity with integrity and be loyal to my employer. And, and still, even that invited uh, them to get angry and, and yell at me in a, in a, in a couple instances, right? Uh, it's, it's, uh, or it's, the, it's a way of life that often invites persecution, anger, and rejection. Not necessarily the Christian gospel. And some of you guys have, can have uh, much more uh, substantial evidences of, of that in your own, in your own life. Um, often, uh, persecution comes, not in respon- it comes in response to, the, to our lifestyle, not, not our words, necessarily. And this makes sense when we put it in the context of the original context of Paul's letter. Timothy's opponents in the church were told last week, Justin, remember, he said they loved themselves, they loved pleasure, they loved money. They, they would abuse and manipulate vulnerable, vulnerable people within the church in order to gain power and influence and money. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. But Timothy, Paul, Paul tells, tells Timothy that their character is to be remarkably different from this. And this leads me to, to, uh, to uh, the third point about, about persecution that we learn from this, from this passage, is that a lot of persecution comes from those claiming to be within the church. A lot of persecution comes from, from those claiming to be within the church. Timothy's opponents were told they had a form of godliness. They did all the right religious stuff. But, they, but in their way of life, they denied its power. And in our passage... You notice Paul calls them imposters. They were fakes. They claimed to preach the gospel of Jesus, but the way they lived was nothing like Jesus or his message. And in Timothy, they saw someone who was trying to lead the church in Ephesus uh, with integrity. uh, He was was trying to be generous and gracious, hospitable. He was trying to be moral. And and that is what drove the the, the people in this church crazy. So the very people claiming to be leaders in the church slandered him, lied about him, and made him feel unwelcome. And Paul says, welcome to the club. That's normal Christian life. And if you think about this, too, it's counterintuitive and countercultural. It runs completely in the opposite direction to so much about what we think about what it means to follow Jesus and, and what we think it means to be, uh, be a part of his church. Many of us were taught that trying to live a Christian life and follow the teachings of Jesus will make us attractive to others, be, uh, will make us attractive to non-Christians, that, that living according to the Bible is the best way to, to make friends, certainly make friends within the church, and, and, and to influence people, right? And there's a lot of truth to this. Right? And integrity, honesty, humility, kindness, those are all like, things that our culture values, for, right? Uh, they, they'll still teach it in kindergarten. Uh, and things that people like it when you're nice to them and when you have integrity. Uh, but, but at the same time, this passage teaches that those qualities will be the reason those who follow Jesus will be persecuted. And that's because truly Christian integrity is simultaneously attractive and repulsive. Truly Christian integrity and holiness and love and compassion and generosity is simultaneously attractive and repulsive. We eat a lot of cilantro in our house. My wife loves cilantro. She will cook it with anything. 
but what I've learned and I, uh, about cilantro is that I like it. it. It enhances flavor, brings out flavor. It has its own distinct like freshness to, to, a, to a dish that it can bring. But there's some people uh, uh, who are victims of a horrible phenomenon who hate the taste of cilantro. Anybody, anybody here I, like ever, uh, does cilantro taste like a bar of soap to you when you eat it? Yeah, like that's a real thing that some people are afflicted with. They, they, they eat cilantro and it tastes like soap. Uh, and I had a friend when we were in, uh, in, in South Carolina who there was this one Mexican restaurant that we all like to go to. Uh, but this, this one friend, he would never go there with us because they put cilantro in their salsa. And it just ruined their whole, the, his whole experience of that restaurant. Like he couldn't even order something else like that didn't require salsa. Or like he just couldn't go there because there was cilantro in the salsa, right? So uh, cilantro is simultaneously attractive to many, but it's repulsive to some, right? Our, our, our way of life as followers of Jesus is to have the same effect. And yes, I've just called people that don't like cilantro, I've just compared them to persecutors of the church. So, uh, <laughs> so um, but uh, uh, the, the, Jesus uses, the, uses a different metaphor in the Gospels. If you remember in uh, Matthew chapter 5, he, he tells his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And then he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, salt and light, those are both wonderful things. Salt preserves meat uh, and enhances flavor. Light helps us to see in the darkness. But, the two, but the, 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 that which makes light and salt wonderful is also what makes it... Uh, uh, is, is all, is, or salt and light are wonderful because they stand in contrast to what's around them. Salt is wonderful because it stands in contrast to, to the decay and the rot of our culture and our world. Light is wonderful because it stands in contrast to and exposes darkness. So the, the, Jesus is telling us that as followers of Jesus, shaped by his gospel, endeavoring to follow meticulously with focused imitation, we're going to stand in direct contrast. And that contrast will invite pain. But that pain is normal. That pain is normal. Now, naturally, you and I would, provor, uh, would prefer to avoid pain. We, we prefer to avoid being lied about. We prefer to avoid being yelled at. We, pre we prefer to avoid... Um, being uh, uh, like isolated or made to feel less than, we, we prefer to avoid being overlooked. Uh, but Paul tells us in this passage, don't shy away. Don't pull back from that press into it. Because it's when you're made fun of, when you're overlooked, when you're lied about, when you're passed over for a, a promotion, or when you're uh, gossiped about by a family member, it's in those situations that you stand in a long line of Christians over the ages who have been treated in the same exact way. And that leads us to the rest of the passage for this morning, the last couple verses. What we've seen is that life in Christ has predictable consequences. The second and last point is, so we must keep pressing in to Scripture. Keep pressing in to Scripture. Look with me at, starting in verse 14. Start starting in verse 14, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, 
knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul says, continue. Did you notice that, that first command? Continue in what you have learned. That in other uh, passages in your Bible, that word is translated as dwell in or abide in or live in. All right, Paul is telling us to s- keep swimming in the waters of the gospel. Keep at it, even when it costs, costs you. And there's two keys to continuing on this path that Paul, Paul brings out. First he says, remember your gospel roots. Did you notice? He says, Timothy, you know who you heard the gospel from, and that since you were a little kid, you knew, you have known what scripture teaches. From, teaches. Uh, uh, so yeah, remember your gospel roots. He says, look back, you know, uh, you know what you have heard, you know who taught you. And there's actually, this is actually a second place in, in the letter that Paul has mentioned Timothy's uh, childhood. Way back in chapter 1, verse 5, he says this. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. So this was Timothy's beginning, his mom and his grandma passing on the faith to, uh, to him, teaching him the Gospels, acquainting him with Scripture. And now as a grown man, Timothy needed to be reminded, needed to remember those beginnings and look back on them as an anchor in difficult times. Right? And that's, a, that's an incredible, powerful, incredibly powerful thing to be able to look back on past events, past relationships as an anchor. All of us who have been following Jesus for more than like two seconds know that we have, that there have been, that God has placed people in our lives that that have significantly and powerfully shaped us. And even those of us who have come to know Jesus later in life, we can look back on our life and see how God has has orchestrated and brought in, and brought people into our lives to shape us. Paul says, look back on that, continually remember that. And by God's grace, that, this is the kind of fruit that we want to see cultivated and pruned and developed at Peninsula Grace. Right? Our goal, we just celebrated four seniors this Sunday uh, who are graduating high school. Parents, our, our goal is, is not that our kids would make it through the awkward years of middle school and, you know, and still following Jesus. Like, our goal is not that our kids would make it through college with their faith intact or that they would uh, you know, find, a, find a good Christian spouse or anything like that. Our goal as parents is, to, is, is that they might come to know and trust and rest in the deep riches of the gospel through the, the, for their entire life, through the worst low points, worst times of pain and frustration and doubting and sorrow that you know that they will experience, right? That is, what, the goal is lifelong following Jesus. And that takes deep gospel roots. That takes deep gospel foundations. 
to do. And it means being intentional like Lois and Eunice, two ladies who continually brought scripture before their uh, son and grandson. And just real practically and briefly, we want to come alongside you in your endeavor as a parent at Peninsula Grace. So just a, a, t- a tangible thing, if your child is in the elementary age, uh, elementary age, we send every, every week, every Tuesday, you get an email with a family devotional guide to, to, uh, with some just practical questions that you can go through with your family to prepare them for either the, the passage that's going to be preached on this Sunday or, or the, the, the coming Sunday or the passage that they're going to be studying in their, in their, element, in their Grace Kids elementary age class over in the next, next building. Uh, so uh, whether or not you use that, that tool or not, that family devotional guide or not, uh, that's just a practical way to keep Scripture before the face of your kids regularly and, and, and consistently. And it starts not when they first begin doubting the faith in college or in high school. It starts even before you're able to have a conversation with them. It starts early. As parents, by doing this, by, by laying the gospel, by laying scripture before our kids, we're digging a deep well from which they can draw on for the rest of their lives. So, Remember gospel roots. Secondly, he says, remember scripture's purpose. We come to that, uh, uh, to a, a verse that many of us have, have heard before, starting in vis- verse 15. He says, the sacred writings uh, that you knew as a child, they are able to g- give you wisdom for salvation. And then he says, all scripture is inspired by God. So it's literally that, that it's, it's breathed out. It comes out of God's mouth inspired uh, by God. So it's accurate, it's, it's reliable, it has authority over our lives. But then notice, most of that verse is spent telling us how to use Scripture, what its purpose is. Uh, scripture is profitable, Paul says. It's, in particular, it has a particular function. It's, it's used to teach, to rebuke. It's meant to correct us and train us. In other words, Scripture's purpose in your life is to make you different than you are today. That's Scripture's purpose in your life. We often come at Scripture thinking, thinking we need a spiritual pick-me-up or a spiritual high or some kind of some truth to latch on to to get through the rest of the day. That's not Scripture's primary purpose. Scripture's primary purpose is to cut and carve and shape you. Scripture is a shaping power. We, my son, his favorite, uh, one of his favorite things to do is play with Play-Doh. And so we'll give him a plastic little Play-Doh knife that he can cut. It's the only time we ever let him use a, a, a knife because it's just a, basically just a flat piece of plastic. And, uh, and he cuts Play-Doh and makes Play-Doh different shapes. We would never give him a real knife. Like we'd never give him a fillet knife or a steak knife or a butcher knife like this, right? Because real knives, real blades, they can actually have an effect. They actually can do something. They can cut, they carve, they, they tear. That's what real blades do. Often, you and I, we come at scripture like it's a tame, domesticated, friendly, safe activity, right? We sit with our cup of coffee looking for, looking for something to inspire us. Scripture is not safe. Scripture is not tame, and it's not domesticated. Scripture is a real blade, and it's meant to carve you. It's meant to cut at you. It's meant to shave off the rough edges in your life. 
So just, just practically, like, examine your own life and heart for a few minutes. When was the last time you read or studied scripture or heard it preached or heard it read or something like that? When's the last time you encountered scripture in some way? You, and you allowed it, uh, you, uh, you acknowledged in what you read or heard or studied a practical and specific way in which you are failing to align yourself with God's design. When was the last time you acknowledged a practical, specific way in which you were failing to align yourselves with God's design? And then after acknowledging that failure intentionally, you intentionally carried out a plan to align yourself with Scripture. Has that occurred in the last week in your life? Where you encountered Scripture, it pointed out a rough edge, and you made a plan to say, to put, put that. I'm not asking, have you grown perfect in holiness in the last week? I'm just saying, have you developed, a, have you tried to carry out a, a specific plan? Has it happened in the last month? Has it happened in the last year? When was the last time you allowed scripture to shape your life? Too many, uh, too many people, my own peers and generations uh, uh, ahead of me have grown cold. They're the faithful Christians faithful to attend church, faithful to serve, faithful to give, their hearts have long become hard and numb to the shaping power of Scripture. Don't let that be you. That's Scripture's purpose. Remember Scripture's purpose. It is to shape, correct, change, and train us. So do you remember the the big idea that we said at the beginning of of the sermon? That this text calls us, it says, we must be shaped by Scripture even when it hurts because we know our end. Paul is trying to breathe life into a struggling, weary Timothy. He's facing persecution. He says, this is normal. It hurts. So don't shy away from it, but keep pressing into Scripture. They're persecuting you because of your way of life, so keep pressing into Scripture to be shaped by it. Uh, and these are challenging verses. As I prepared, uh, prepared this, my heart was beat many times by this text, showing me ways that I fail to do this, uh, ways that I, I, I do shy away from pain, that I do shy away, that, I, that, I have, uh, that my heart has grown cold to the shaping power of Scripture. Yet as challenging as these verses are, don't miss the beautiful promise of the gospel that they imply. Paul is pointing to the word of God himself. That, that, the text that's breathed out by his life, that has life-giving breath, and the word of God itself has unique power to make you wise for salvation. It has unique and the sole power to make you a complete and a whole person that's fully equipped for every good work. In other words, Timothy's hope and our hope for growth, our hope for assurance, our hope for life in Christ, it is not, it's, it's in something outside of him. It's in the words of God himself. Paul does not write to Timothy, you're going through a hard situation, so, you, so now is soul searching time. You better look within yourself and find the strength to endure. Paul says, no, don't look within yourself. Look outside of yourself. Look to the word of God to find power. In the word of God, there is power to shape and to change you. So we look to scripture. We look to something outside of ourselves. 
For in Scripture, we have all we need for life. We have all we need for death. Let's, uh, let's pray now. Father, we praise you because uh, though we are uh, faithless, you remain faithful. Uh, that your word, we praise you because your word is in itself power. That your word has the capacity and ability to change. So we come to you, some of us wearied by our own sin. We come to you, some of us wearied by the sins of others. Uh, that have uh, the ways that people have sinned against us. We come to you uh, obsessed with our own needs, our own situations. And we, we ask, Lord, that, that you would shape us, not in, not in the way that we want to be shaped. We ask that you would shape us in accordance with your word. Lord, for those of us who are, uh, who are, hurting, who are, who, are, who are following you and who are hurting because of it, Lord, we pray that you would lift up, that you would give us strength to keep enduring. Lord, for those of us who have maybe shied away from pressing into scripture, who have shied away from uh, laying uh, ourselves beneath the power of scripture and have then withdrawn from pain, withdrawn from from faithfully following you. Lord, I pray that you would challenge and inspire us. We pray all this in Christ's name. I do have one... um